This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Downtown Oakland, where we work, is beautiful. But it doesn't cut a very distinct skyline. Sure, there are the cranes down by the port, and those are pretty famous. But in terms of downtown Oakland proper, there's pretty much just one building that defines the nighttime skyline. The Tribune Tower. It used to be the headquarters of the newspaper, the Oakland Tribune. The paper moved up the street, so now the tower is an office building. That's producer Avery Truffleman. The Tribune Tower, which happens to be right by our office, was the tallest building in Oakland in the 1920s. It's a 22-story tower, topped with a copper-coated, pitched mansard roof and a sandy brick exterior. It's really unique architecture, but that is not why it's the most distinctive building in Oakland. It's famous because it says Tribune in gigantic orange-red neon letters on all four sides of the building, and each side has a neon clock with neon hands. And it's always on, every night, never flickering, rarely is a letter out. Because the Tribune Neon has a secret weapon on the top, top floor of the tower. Take the elevator to the 20th floor. There you'll see a door. Restricted area, limited access. And there's a flight of narrow stairs. Up the stairs, you'll find a man. John? Hi. John Law, the keeper of the neon. We are on the 22nd floor of the Oakland Tribune Tower. So I have a tiny office space in one corner, and the current owners, you know, I have a wonderful arrangement with them, and you know, we rent the place from them, and I keep their neon signs going. By trade, John Law is a sign installer and maintainer, and he is the one that keeps the Tribune Tower neon blazing. Nowadays, a wraparound neon clock on the 20th floor of a building is fairly rare. There were more in the 30s and 40s. They built a lot more buildings with, with signage on them and neon on them. They're almost all gone. The Tribune neon, like many, many neon signs, has had periods of darkness and neglect. Most signs of this size have been allowed to flicker out and die. But thanks to John and the owner of the tower, the Tribune neon, after a period of neglect, has been on consistently since the late 90s. And this is no small feat. This is back of one of the four clocks. Watch your head coming in. John can repair some of the neon from within the tower. But if I have to get out on the face and work on the neon, on the letters I have to clip into, I have a full body harness and kind of step onto the face of the letter with my butt hanging over a drop. A drop of something like 300 feet. But John loves heights. And he loves neon. There's nothing like neon. I mean, other light sources, they don't have that kind of fuzzy, otherworldly look to it that you get with neon. And neon signage, you know, can be very beautiful. And a lot of people in the past have considered it to be cheesy and ugly and representative of some dying commercialism that they found uh, unpleasant. People like philosophers, essayists, writing critiques of late capitalism, they use neon as a metaphor to express their distaste for the neon hell that we all live in. Christoph Ribot is the author of Flickering Light, A History of Neon. And I teach American studies at the University of Paderborn in Germany. For Professor Ribot, to study neon is to study America. A blinking in the night in some American diner, that's just something, if you come from a European background, it has a really kind of aesthetic power to it. It is a great metaphor of American culture, even though it's not an American product. 
per se. The gas, neon, was discovered in 1898 by a British scientist named Sir William Ramsey. It was a new gas, so he named it for the Greek neos, meaning new. Ramsey realized that if you ran electricity through this new gas, it would burn bright, bright orangey red. But he basically said, oh, that's cool, and then forgot about it, moving on to find other gases and ultimately win a Nobel Prize. But neon lights as we know them were made and popularized by another chemist. It was this Frenchman, and uh, he like played around with these neon tubes, and he was a pretty good businessman and thought, well, we could do something with this. A Frenchman named Georges Claude made his first neon lights in 1910, and he eventually quit chemistry to start a business called Claude Neon. It was the first to sell this new lighting for decor and for advertising. The first neon signs were up in Paris. The barber shop was the first shop ever to have a neon sign. And then it really spread around the city of Paris. And from Paris, then it spread around the world. George Claude may have been the father of neon lights, but he was not a good guy. Well, yeah, you know, it's hard to fall in love with him. He turned into an ardent follower of Nazi Germany. You know, great businessman, but also doubtful morals. But neon swept the United States. It was brighter and more efficient than incandescent lighting, and Americans were giddy with it. By 1924, the company Claude Neon had franchises in 14 major cities across the country. By the 1930s, there were 20,000 neon advertisements in Manhattan and Brooklyn, most of them made by Claude Neon. Neon signs were the embodiment of prosperity. So neon was on respectable, upscale spots like movie palace marquees and opera houses. You know, nice places. So it started with the churches and the, and, and the fur stores and, and the car dealerships, you know, institutions that signified luxury. Neon became the symbol of life in the big city. Late 40s, Peggy Lee, a you know, singer in those days, she had a song. I'm going out where the neon signs shine down on the avenue. I'm going out with the neon signs and I'm going to shine like neon. It was really this neon enthusiasm of that period. But the initial excitement fades. The popularity of downtown wanes. People move to the suburbs. The cities grow dark. The neon flickers. Years later, 10, 20 years down the road, then it was like more cheap bars, cheap hotels, and then it had this seedy uh, quality to it. And then by and by, it turned into this metaphor of people who, you know, more or less critiqued uh, the loneliness uh, in society. And the people bow and pray to the neon god they made. There's a lot of country and western songs that are, you know, always has, have someone, you know, getting drunk by the neon sign. There's a neon light at the end of the tunnel. And suddenly neon, which used to be a sign of luxury, turns into a symbol of poverty and of rundown cities. Neon is also hard to maintain, and a broken neon sign is a bright, flashing sign of brokenness. And, and that's why it became the symbol of, of, of decay. If neon tubes are made well, they can last about 30 years, sometimes up to 70. But they are glass, so they can break. And they're out there in the elements, so the electricity can flicker out. When a neon sign goes out, you can't just screw in a new tube or order up a cheap replacement. You would think that it was like a machine-made product, right? That there was some sort of big neon factory that just turned out uh, neon on an assembly line. And that's really not the case. It's really craftsmen who shape these signs. 
they bend the tubes with their hands. It's really just, you know, one person doing this. A person like Shauna Peterson. A neon glass blower is not a glass blower. It's really called neon tube bending. That's the trade. We're tube benders. Shauna Peterson has been bending since 1987. She says color is a good way to decode these signs, to know what's inside of them and what quality they are. Red neon lights are the most basic and the most popular. And that's like a reddish orange. And that's the standard neon red. That is pure neon gas. It just naturally burns that color. And then there's blue neon, also pretty basic. The cool secret about blue neon is that it's not actually neon gas. It's argon gas, brightened with a little mercury. But we still call them neon signs. And for a while, almost all neon signs were just red and blue. Pure neon or argon mercury in clear tubes. Then the industry came up with a way to make any color you want. There's a phosphor powder coating on the inside of the tubes. Benders can use tubes with different phosphors on the inside of the tubes to create more colors than just red and blue. Use a fuchsia, use a green, a lime green. Go for lime green, you know? Use of color done well is nice. Now, just to be clear, those neon beer signs at the bodega, or those standard open signs, can be, and often are, made on a massive scale in China. Those are still hand-blown. That's the only way to make neon. But that's like one person makes only the letter E all day long. Another person makes only O's. And these signs are lower quality. Cheap signs for beer brands or generic open signs are often colored with a coating of colored plastic on the outside of the glass tubes. Usually it's so cheap you can chip it off with your fingernail. But if you're looking at a sign over your local bar or hotel, or sometimes even a neon sign over a chain store, if it's large and you haven't seen it anywhere else, it was probably painstakingly crafted. Probably locally. Neon tube benders get glass from the manufacturer in four-foot-long tubes, and they draw out a pattern for how they'll bend and fuse it. You're bending the word apple. You never start with A. You have to map out in your mind where those curves are and how they're going to change direction. And generally, you're going to start somewhere in the center of that word and work your way out. And Shauna has a number of different burners and tools to manipulate the tubes. To bend a curve, she'll hold the glass tube on either end over an open flame burner. And when I'm using it, it sounds like this. Shauna has only a few seconds to bend the glass into a perfect shape before it hardens up again. So she has to act quickly and precisely. Sneezing is a tube bender's nightmare. Then Shauna processes the bent tubes with a machine called a bombarder. It's this whole process where she heats up the tubes really, really hot and vacuums out the impurities before filling the tubes with neon or argon mercury and fuses the electrical source to them. That, in crude summary, is the craft. It's expensive, it's difficult, and there aren't that many people who can make neon signs. And that is why... When they break, they usually get replaced with LEDs. LED is so much cheaper. And people in the LED industry will tell you it's so much brighter as well. Randall Ann Homan and Al Barna are the publishers and photographers of a book called San Francisco Neon, Survivors and Lost Icons. All of these signs are part of our cultural heritage in San Francisco. And they're treasures and we need to hang on to them. Randall and Al lead tours of some of their favorite neon around the city. Let's stop here. Many of the signs are defunct or hang over businesses that they're no longer affiliated with. All right, so this is my very favorite sign. This Art Deco peacock has no fewer than 17 concentric circles of neon, and it's really a feat of tube bending. 
Now, the business is long gone. It's kind of a miracle that it's still here. San Francisco was once covered in neon. Look at an old picture of Market Street from the 1950s, and you'll see it looks like the Vegas Strip, all aglow with flashing lights. Then in the 60s, there was a campaign to get rid of all that flash and beautify that part of town. And almost all those neon signs were removed. And around the rest of the city, pretty regularly, stops on Randall and Al's neon tour will just vanish. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing and awkward to bring a tour group around the corner to talk about a sign that doesn't exist anymore. So it kind of illustrates the nature of neon signs. If you're interested in photographing them or painting them, do it as quick as you can because they can disappear overnight. And it's not just San Francisco. New York also went from having tens of thousands of signs in the 1970s to just a couple hundred today. Hong Kong is losing a lot of its spectacular neon displays. Signs change with their cities. But in some spheres, neon is having a little revival. The few neon benders around are getting a lot of business from high-end restaurants and hotels, companies who want quotes illuminated on their walls, or artists who are commissioning neon pieces. Now, a custom neon sign represents an emphasis on craftsmanship and style, tinged with a bit of nostalgia. And sure, this all sounds very artisanal and stuff, but this might just be the way the neon craft survives. At its core, the ingredients are simple. Glass, electricity, and gas from the air we breathe. And the results bend into something spectacular. Invisible was produced this week by Avery Truffleman with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Kurt Colstead, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks this week to Jim Rizzo of Neon Works in Oakland and Tom Downs, author of Walking San Francisco. Randall and Al's photography book, San Francisco Neon, Survivors, and Lost Icons is now in its third printing. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from Veridesk. Sitting all day is not good for you, and if your name is not Avery Truffleman, you probably can't stand all day either. Veridesk lets you switch from a sitting desk to a standing desk in just three seconds, and it sits right on top of your existing furniture. It arrives to your door fully assembled with no tools required. They have a bunch of different models to choose from that will fit your workspace and your budget. Go to veradesk.com, that's V-A-R-I, desk.com, and find the model that's right for you. 99% Invisible is supported by Audible.com. Audible is the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment, information, and educational programming. Listeners of this program will definitely enjoy Lafayette in the somewhat United States, written and read by Sarah Val. Audible is offering 99% Invisible listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash 99PI and choose from over 180,000 titles and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash 99PI and get started today. And finally, the reason we were able to create Radiotopia from PRX is because of you, the listeners, the Knight Foundation, and MailChimp. But only one of those makes monkey hats for cats and small dogs. MailChimp makes communicating with the people in your community a joy with easy-to-use and smart tools for making email newsletters that people actually want to read. If you want your business to reach people in a way that makes them happy that they heard from you, you can sign up at MailChimp.com and start sending better email. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify, but you can listen to every single episode of 99% Invisible at 99pi.org.
Utopia.